Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we took no pleasure in reporting that Post Media, the largest newspaper chain in Canada, laid off 90 journalists and consolidated its newsrooms across the country. And that can sound like just another depressing bulletin about how our media is collapsing. Announcements like that seem to be coming from our legacy news orgs like every day. And the numbers of casualties are often much higher than 90. But the post-media cuts are worth taking a very close look at. For one thing, they speak directly to the core issues at hand here. The dangers of media consolidation and monopolization. Yesterday, Postmedia bought the Sun newspaper chain. Today, they're dismantling it. And whatever you think of the Sun newspapers, that was a distinct voice covering different stories than other newspapers. Well, no more. And the public reaction to the Postmedia cuts speak volumes about the public's relationship to our newspapers. I mean, after years of Postmedia's baffling political endorsements, advertiser creep into editorial content, censorship and spin, you remember those suppressed columns by Margaret Atwood and Andrew Coyne, all of the stuff that we here at Canada Land have been reporting on, and a lot more, after all of that, many readers reacted to the news of these job cuts with a shrug. Or even a serves you guys right. Now, there were also plenty of sympathetic messages from colleagues in other newsrooms to the prime minister himself. There was also disgust at the lavish bonuses that post-media executives paid themselves as they drove their business off of a cliff. But there was not a lot of surprise. Nobody could credibly act like they are shocked by this news. And for me, that's the interesting part. What if this is all part of the plan? I'm not talking conspiracy theory. I'm talking about their actual business plan. 
not a plan to succeed, plan to make the transition into the digital news era, but Post Media's plan to make money for its owners, its American hedge fund owners, by dying the right way. Bruce Livesey is a name that you might remember. We kind of got him fired. Um, He's the veteran investigative reporter and and business journalist who lost his contracts with Global News after we reported that they had spiked his documentary about the billionaire Koch brothers' influence in the Canadian oil sands. He is now the lead investigative reporter for the National Observer website, where he wrote the definitive take on this stuff, a recent article titled The Tawdry Fall of the Post-Media Newspaper Empire. And Bruce Livesey will join me in a moment. Quick reminder, if you live in Toronto, Canada Land at the Movies debuts this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. at the Review Cinema on Roncesvalles. What's going to happen is Michael Enright and I will talk about the movie that made him want to become a reporter, and then we will screen that movie, Deadline USA with Humphrey Bogart. There is booze at this wonderful movie theater, and I will be drinking some of it and chatting with Michael Enright and our other guests, maybe you, after the film. So if you want tickets to this, go to reviewcinema.ca, that's R-E-V-U for review, and you can follow the links there to buy tickets online. Or you could just show up. We're going to hold some tickets back at the box office the night of. I hope to see you there. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Ben Clarkson, Josh Aselstein, John DeWald, Philip Conliffe, Michael Yokota, Paul Baker, Chris Fagel, Vincent Zelazny, and James Portman. James, why did you decide to be awesome? Because the Canada Land team provides engaging reporting that I didn't find with my Globe subscription. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks.com. FreshBooks is the proud Canadian company that makes billing painless and simple and easy. If you are a small entrepreneur, if you're a freelancer, if you're self-employed and you got to send people invoices, FreshBooks is what you should be using. It is what I use. They just completely retooled their already very effective mobile app. It now runs like lightning fast. You can do things in a third of the time it used to take you. It is simpler. It is more intuitive. And like I said, it is faster to send invoices than it ever was before. And it has this strange effect that it gets you paid faster. Because when your invoices show up to clients looking so slick and professional, I don't know if it's psychological or what, you look like a real grown-up business and they send you money quicker. I can tell you that that is true from personal experience. The app is great because you can conduct your business from anywhere in the world. Check it out. Try the whole thing for free. The app, the website, for free for 30 days at Fresh. FreshBooks.com, and when you do sign up and become a customer, 
Tell them who sent you. You will be doing this show a favor. FreshBooks.com, painless billing. When the Aspers go into bankruptcy, essentially, they have $4 billion worth of debt. And uh, what happened was is that some of the debt was controlled by these American hedge funds. So when Godfrey organizes this, this basically this consortium of 19 private equity and hedge funds, the controlling powers of the debt were held by American hedge funds. In particular, two of them, uh, one called a Golden Tree, another one called Silver Point. And so this posed a problem, and the problem was that Canadian particular tax laws forbid American ownership or foreign ownership of our media. How come? Well, I mean, for nationalistic reasons. You know, we don't, it's just, it's part of the sort of, you could call it the, you know, the Canadian nationalistic tradition. So, But we have Vice Canada, it's an American company, though it started in Canada. We have BuzzFeed Canada. Those laws don't apply to online media. Well, I mean, and and a good media lawyer could probably sort that out. I mean, the reality is a lot of this has gotten very relaxed, Uh you know, as as times have changed. The government could have said no. The government could have said no. Uh And what it actually had forced Godfrey to to do was he had to create a separate, he had to issue Canadian shares and have Canadian shareholders. And so to pretend that this was owned by Canadians— when in reality it wasn't. And those shares, by the way, are now worth about 13 cents. I think they're down to almost zero by now. They've been pegged by analysts as being worth zero. They are, yeah. So they, they are worthless now. Uh-huh. So that was, in my opinion, a bit of a sham. It was just window dressing in order to allow these American hedge funds to uh, have a controlling interest. You call them hedge funds. I've heard them also described of as uh, vulture funds. You described them in, in your piece as uh, distressed debt funds. Distressed what, debt funds, yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean? What is a vulture fund? What kind of companies so, are these? So the way they profit is they find a company that's in trouble and has, let's say, a lot of debt, as, as the, as the uh, CanWest papers did. But they see that there's, there's still assets and value in the holding. And so traditionally what they do is they come in, they, they, they buy up the debt. And so now, now they control the company. And then they usually sell off as much as they can. They lay off as many people. They shut down as many factories as they can uh, until it's right down to the bone where it's still generating money. It's generating cash flow. You know, so that they'll be generating an income for the, for the, for the hedge fund. And if it does go into receivership, they're first in line as creditors. So they, so one way or another, they make their money back. The they make their money off interest payments, interest which are payments, added, what are the rates? Well, they range from about eight to eight to thirteen percent, which uh-huh. is very high. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's a cannibalization process. So they, they're like a parasite, you know, sucking off the host, you know, and as it, and they make their money, and the host you know, will die. And that's, in effect, what's happening to post media. We talk, like, in such grave tones, the dying media, the dying media, and they are in dire straits, and the newspaper industry is facing all these challenges. And you look at them, and the revenues last quarter, this atrocious report they just put out about how much, how, how everything is down, 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 and it's been going down, and yet $230 million in revenue the last quarter. So that's almost a billion dollars coming in every year. It's just that they're 
they're spending more than they're they're well. You got, but you have to remember it's a bit of a, an illusion. So b- before they bought the Sun Papers, their revenue had fallen something like thirty percent in three years. But even with that fall, it was still uh, uh, something at like uh, upwards of seven hundred million dollars a year in revenue post media. Right. But they're not making profit. So this is why they're attractive. Uh, like their books are, are a bit bizarre because they, they their net profits are. Are, are non-existent and their net losses are huge, mm-hmm. massive. But accountants don't, when they look at this, uh, that's irrelevant um, to a certain extent. What's relevant is cash flow. So it's, as long as it's generating p- positive cash flow. All of which comes from advertising and yeah. subscription. Yeah. And mostly advertising. Yeah. But in order to generate positive cash flow, given you're losing money, in effect, you have to be cutting constantly. Yeah. And so that's been the history of post-media. You know, they, they've gone from, I think it was 5,400 employees in 2011. Uh, you know, with these layoffs, they're probably down to about 2,400. So they've lost possibly about three, over, over 3,000 people in the last five to six years. The analogy that I've made in the past, and it's a crude one, is, you know, that scene in Goodfellas where the distressed restaurant owner asks the mob for a loan. And once you got that partnership, they don't care if you had a bad week or a good week. That's right. Fuck you, pay me. That's right. Fuck you, pay me. That's right. Give me the money until they go out of business, yeah. and then they burn the place down. Yeah. Is that unfair? No. I mean, you know, it's not necessarily the hedge fund's fault in the sense that this is a dying twilight industry. It, w- it wouldn't have mattered if, if Santa Claus owned this place. The death of post media is happening faster than it should have, but – all, I mean, Torstar, the Globe and Mail, you know, they're all in the same situation because of the economics of the newspaper industry, which is a, is a dying economic model. I guess the difference would be, and I know that they would dispute this and everything about this characterization, that the game plan with the Toronto Star, as much as I might mock Star Touch, they are trying to turn things around. I guess what this suggests is there's a fork in the road where you could say, Let's fight till our dying breath to have a place uh, that will sustain as a news organization in whatever the, the journalism industry looks like after we're done with newsprint. Or you could say, and I guess we're suggesting the post media has said, this is going to die. What is going to be the most profitable way to burn this down? A, a controlled implosion where these funds in America get paid, where Paul Godfrey gets paid but at the detriment of everybody who works there and arguably at the detriment of the Canadian newsreader. You know, the problem when a hedge fund uh, buys your, your asset, your newspaper, is they don't care about journalism and freedom of the press and covering City Hall or covering Ottawa. They just care if they get their debt payments mm-hmm. and, or their interest payments. So the problems of all these newspapers are the same, and that is because their economic model is for all intents and purposes finished. And what you're seeing with all of these newspapers, you know, is, is, a, is a slow death spiral. I think in the case of Post Media, it's a faster death spiral because of the, their debt problems and their ownership issues. Is everything going according to plan? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, well, I, you know, just not to... Uh, is everything going according to plan? Maybe you should rephrase your question. <laughs> what is your question? Is there any relationship no, between I, the editorial decisions no, that I are mean, getting made if, and, and, the, and these business if decisions? If you went back to the 1988 free trade election, 
every newspaper in Canada, with the exception of one, which was the Toronto Star, um, supported a free trade and therefore supported the Mulroney government. So post-media endorsing the Tories and, and doing it in the ham-handed fashion they did is nothing new. Uh, as I said, they, I mean, if you, again, if you go, if free trade election was a great example where the, the newspapers were essentially propaganda outlets for the, the right wing and the Tories and the business community, even though most Canadians did not support free trade in, in that election. So that's not new. Um, and I don't think the, Tor- you know, the, the Godfrey ordering his papers to, to support Harper really has any bearing on the economic issues. I mean, I think you could make an argument that if if you were thinking forward about future audiences and appealing to younger readers and and to uh, you know readers in downtown Toronto or downtown Montreal, downtown Vancouver, then the positions, the political positions they've taken on numerous issues, mm-hmm. I mean, they're just idiotic. If you cared about replenishing your aging readership with new readers, yeah, I mean, you're, you, they're morons. But yeah. they're a bunch of white middle-aged guys. If they who, were trying to do that, stuck, who are stuck in a in a in a in the ice age era. But nothing they've done suggests that they've been trying to do that. No. So that's I, that's why I ask: Is this all going according to plan? I, and I, I've heard that argued too. Of people uh, of color online saying, "Boy, if you had only given a damn about representing people like me and, and hearing voices like mine and giving me somebody that I care about listening to, you know, maybe you'd have more readers." But I think that. The actual answer to that question is, and it's 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 stunning when you think about it. They didn't care if anyone read them. I mean, they didn't. I mean, they, nothing they did suggested that they cared if they found new readers. Nothing that they did suggests that they care if they are liked by readers. If, is well, that, I, I mean, think, I think there's. A, I mean, listen, the, the, the newspaper industry historically always been very conservative. Yeah. it's a business. It gets supported by corporate advertising overwhelmingly. So, you know, it's a, it, they have institutionally been very conservative. And, and this idea of appealing to new readers and younger readers is nothing new. I mean, I used to work for iWeekly, which was uh, an alternative weekly here in Toronto, which was owned by Torstar back in the late 90s. I worked there for a couple of years. So Torstar was thinking, how can we appeal to yeah. subway readers and young readers? And, you know, and, and they, they've toyed with diversity. That's and what the, and they're, they're having the same problem. Sure. So I don't think the, the issue is the economics of the business. It's a product that's on paper when people now read their news online and they cannot generate the same revenue that they used to by publishing a paper when they move online. So, so newspapers have been moving online for, you know, for more than a decade and they're still having the same financial problems because the bulk of their revenue comes from display advertising in a printed product. Mm-hmm. That is the underlying problem. And it wouldn't have mattered if post-media had been a more, you know, pro-NDP, left-wing, you know, progressive, you know, outlets. Or just better newspapers. Or just better newspapers, is they would have, they would have faced the same problem. I mean, the New York Times, which is one of the great newspapers, you know, and a liberal newspaper, uh, they've had the same crisis. Mm-hmm. If you accept that argument that everyone is heading down the drain, then if you figure out some economic 
play that allows the people at top to kind of strip the copper from the building and, and, and make out like bandits, then it's, it all leads to the same place anyhow. But I get, Well, I mean, that's the insidious part of uh-huh. this. Post-media's decline was probably inevitable. Post-media's decline as rapidly and in such a kind of um, awful way was probably not because of the hedge funds who run it, the guys who run it, their desire to make as much money out of it before it all expired. Mm-hmm. So that is, you could argue, the crime here was that it probably didn't, doesn't have to decline as fast and in such a kind of tawdry way that it has. I guess that's what I butt up against is the is the lie of it when when you hear Godfrey, who is an old man, who does not seem to grasp the internet or computers with uh, any degree of sophistication, kind of spouting this stuff about their four-platform strategy this and, and canoe.ca that, and it feels like he's using a lot of digital baffle gab to suggest that, like, no, we really are trying to make a go of it, and that's not actually what he's there to do. It's not what he's paid to well, do. Well, you know, to be fair to Post Media, they, they, they made investment. They tried to, you know, go the digital route. They, I think they created a, a tab or were in the process of creating some sort of tablet app or something. Which they pulled. Which they pulled. So they, so, so it, and, you know, they, they made efforts and then a larger possibly because of cost cutting, they did, it all kind of died on the vine. Yeah, this is a larger issue that I, I want to get into. And uh, I want to talk about the digital ghetto and, and uh, what happens in corporations where rather than actually innovate, they set up a little corner and say, you four people in the corner, you guys innovate. And they don't have any way of measuring the success. They're not really, they don't know what they want to get out of it. And then when it comes time to cut, that's the first thing that gets cut. That's not a credible strategy for the future. There are papers that are doing things like ceasing publication throughout the week and going online only during the week and then having a Saturday paper and really trying to make a go of it online. There are papers that are trying to survive in the States. Star Touch, I think, is a debacle. They have some almost magical belief in, in the, the, that this is going to turn things around for them. I guess what we can't really determine here is you call it tawdry. I wonder if it's sinister. I wonder to what degree we're being explicitly lied to. Well, I, I don't, you know, I don't doubt that guys like Godfrey want to make, you know, keep the, you know, post media as a corporate entity going as long as he can. I don't think he's driven by desire to drive it into the ground. I think he's he's just caught up in a situation that's beyond his own control. He doesn't control the debt, yeah. and he doesn't control the economic forces that are at play. But he's got to make those payments. But he's got to make those payments. Yeah. I mean, I think the more insidious part about Godfrey is that when he has been in control of these media outlets, he's very explicitly used them to support his Tory friends. Mm-hmm. And you saw that in the late 90s when he helped to get Mel Lastman elected the mayor of Toronto, which was when Toronto amalgamated into this one big city. And Lastman arguably ran one of the most corrupt regimes in Toronto's history. And, and, and Godfrey's, you know, acquaintances all engaged in the, in the corruption. Um, and then you've seen that since he took over post-media. It's, it's kind of very strong support of the Harper uh, regime and the, and the conservatives. I think what he has demonstrated, and you saw this prior, prior to this election, the, the federal, you know, the, the October federal election was that what I think was a little bit surprising was the degree that he was willing to use his newspapers 
as a propaganda tool of the conservative party. I mean, you saw censorship. You saw the front pages of his of of all the daily newspapers turned over, what three days before the election with these awful ads from mm-hmm. the Tories. That's unprecedented in Canadian history, from what I understand. I mean, that's pretty. I mean, newspapers have have been historically been very partisan, but in this day and age, it's very unusual to do that sort of thing. So, there was a level of interference and overt politicization of those papers, which comes directly from from Godfrey. But you saw the signs of that earlier in his career, especially when he was pushing to get last-minute election. He fired one of the columnists for the Toronto Sun, who wrote some critical stories about last-minute. He ensured that, that no negative uh, photos or stories appeared in the Sun about last-minute. And last-minute was a bad mayor. I mean, he was a mm-hmm. he was a carnival barker. You know, a, a guy who ended up, um, what was he, ended up like shaking hands with Hell's Angels during Hell's Angels convention. I mean, he was just a, he was a joke, but he was a useful idiot for Godfrey. Lost in in the shuffle here, you know, it's crazy that, that things mutate to a degree that the simple act of providing people who wake up in the morning and want to know what's going on with the information that they require gets sacrificed. This is there's another awful part to all this, and the awful part is so, the display advertising business is dying, and advertisers are going online. The problem now is Google and Facebook in particular. Between the two, they have eaten up more than fifty percent of the online advertising market, mm-hmm. and what that shows is that advertisers don't care if their ad is beside a fantastic piece of investigative journalism or beside a kitty video, or beside you know, your own photos from your, your vacation. You know, they don't care. So that's a terrible dilemma for any news organization, whether you're online or not. We're in a period where news gathering, journalism, faces a terrible crisis, not only because of the death of the newspaper industry, but because of what's happening in cyberspace, which is these, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks are sucking up all the advertising dollars. And advertisers don't care if it's beside a news article or not. Explain Vice to me then. Well, but Vice is, again, it's early days for Vice. And what they have done and what uh, BuzzFeed have done is native advertising. Mm-hmm. So they, they've gone a step further of sort of marrying editorial content almost to advertising. Vice has, has proven that they are willing to kill stories if it will, in effect, offend advertisers. BuzzFeed hasn't had that reputation yet. They had a little something with Dove. Yes. They had a little something. I mean, I think the problem for the Toronto Stars and the Globe Mails and the Post Medias is that they're not as clever as the guys at BuzzFeed who came out of the whole, you know, Silicon Valley cyber, cyber internet culture who didn't have legacy cause, didn't have to publish newspapers, didn't have union contracts to deal with. And they've been, they're a step ahead, they're more nimble, they have fewer, as I said, of these legacy costs to worry about. And they have figured out some ways to make, to make money in this kind of rapidly changing market. You know, you could buy a newspaper once very cheaply for 25 cents or 10 cents and, because the advertising subsidized the cost of it. So it became a mass, it be, because it was so affordable, it became a mass medium. 
You know, mm-hmm. Everybody could buy a newspaper because it was simply because it was so cheap. Now that advertising is there no longer to subsidize the content, you know, you have a cost issue now. Are people willing to spend three dollars, four dollars for 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 a, a one you know one copy of the Global Mail? Not and, as it currently stands, no. Well, not as much as they used. You know, it, it stops being a mass media yeah. after a while. So at the same time, we're used to all this free content we can access online. As flawed as they were, newspapers in the old model did employ people who covered City Hall and you know covered Ottawa. And, and in that soup did occasionally some great journalism. I think the problem we're facing now is that if that all goes, and it is going— and has been going for a long time, do we know that, that you know, if the tree has fallen in the forest, do we know that stories are not being done because there's simply nowhere, no one out there actually witnessing things happening anymore and reporting about them? And, and so it becomes difficult to measure to a certain extent when journalists stop covering things anymore because it's like the absence of a sound. You just don't know it ever happened. It, we're in an interesting paradigm, right? Because we're in a situation where that kind of uh, shoe leather reporting isn't happening and lots of communities don't have anybody at City Hall. And yet more and more things are being recorded. But they're not necessarily like, I, I, you know, I, I've been a journalist for over 30 years. I know the difference between being a professional journalist and amateur journalist. I'm not talking about crowd. No, but this is, but I'm this, not saying citizen journalists are going to save us all. No, no. I think, but there's a, like, at least, you know, once you had a, you had journalism schools and you had, these institutions like the CBC yeah. and you know the, these newspapers with long traditions, you had people who learned the craft of journalism, which is not necessarily easy to master and to do well. And especially if you start doing investigative journalism, more complicated forms of journalism, it becomes even you know appreciably harder harder to do. The problem now is that with the collapse of the old media, the traditions are going too. So anyone can say I'm a, I'm a journalist. And they can start reporting whatever they want, but that doesn't mean it's good journalism. And you end up, and you see this in the in the on, online all the time. You see all sorts sorts of, you know, rumors published as news. Yeah. You see a lot of nonsense published as information. You see also a lot of people who who've carved out a niche in dispelling that and testing that. Yeah, but it's like I'm not I'm not saying that it's all bad. I'm just saying is that I think there's. In the collapse of the old media. Yeah. You are seeing also the loss of craft. And that's alarming. Inarguably, uh, inarguably, and uh, I, I, some we're losing something. I mean, when the Buzzfeeds and the Vices, you know, they're hiring kids. Yeah, you know, as am I. And yeah. and and it, it, you could argue it's reflected in the content. I'm not saying that the kids can't do good work, and they often come with more enthusiasm and good ideas, but that you know, at the same time, you know, having experienced people do journalism is is you know is you, you see it dramatically. A dramatic difference. To do really good journalism takes time. Yeah. Like the, the piece uh, I did on Post Media took me, you know, three to four weeks. And, and, and uh, I'm doing a piece now for The Globe that's taken me, it'll take me a month. And I, I can't survive on $100 a, a week doing that sort of work. But I you're, need, still, you're still plugged into a model where you're appealing to an editor at a newspaper or even when you're doing stuff for... Well, no, I mean, I, the, but, but my point is that Part of being a journalist is having the money and time to do really thorough work. So, you know, I think we are at a very bad point where the commercial media is dying, which has always been a problematic vehicle anyway, 
because of their own conf- conflicted out with corporate interests and all that. And the public media is dying too. And I'm not convinced, you know, the BuzzFeeds and the Vices are going to fill the void. I'm not convinced either. And I, and I think that the fact that those are foreign-owned companies that can easily extend a working business model into Canada by hiring small staffs here and sometimes doing good work, I don't think that they have the same sense of responsibility that we are here. I think there's people there who have that sense of responsibility, but the organization does not exist with a sense of we are here to cover this beat and we owe that to our readers and and we're going to make sure that that happens. Unfortunately, right now, I don't think the CBC as an institution has that value either. I, I think that the utopian future where, you know, the, the best possible outcome would be that, dare I say it, like maybe it's a good thing if postmedia dies and we can lose that sense that, well, I don't really like my local paper, but at least someone's there. No, there is no local paper there. Your community is not being served. You're going to demand that coverage from the CBC in a way that we have not seen Canadians say, get the hell out of all this other stuff you're doing, the sitcoms and the dramas and the silly stuff and the music streaming – cover my local government, cover my community, and we're going to turn to some of these other models, these uh, be they philanthropic, other nonprofit models or cooperative models, crowdfunding models like I've pursued, and solve this problem for ourselves because I feel like we have been in suspended animation in this country where we have just sort of whined and wrung our hands about the quality of the news coverage, but nobody's done anything about it. And we're, we're, we're easy pickings for these American franchises, you know? Well, I think part of the problem is that we're also a big spread out country. And this really af- impacts on the ability of, of news organizations to have a national presence because it's just such a large country. Mm-hmm. So this, this is why the CBC historically been so important because, you know, through public funding, it allowed journalists to be hired in all these backwaters. For a commercial enterprise coming to Canada, you don't see the market as being very big and you can't see it as, you know, making a lot of money necessarily. And and the economics, you know, unless you do all your news coverage in Toronto, like the economics of flying people to Calgary or to Vancouver become very expensive after a while. On a more optimistic note uh, is that if you're talented and you have some entrepreneurial spirit, you can make a good living in Canada doing good journalism. You know, you just have to figure out the new sources of income. You know, I think journalists who sort of want a a full-time $70,000 a year job and a pension plan, those days unfortunately are gone. I mean, maybe if you end up at the CBC, possibly. But those days are going. And, and, And increasingly, journalists have to get much more entrepreneurial about where they're going to get their money from, how they're going to get the money, who's going to be the source and, and, and that's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I find money from different sources mm-hmm. to do the work I do. And it can be done. Imagine the all-star newsroom you could put together with the people who lost their jobs last week. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of fantastic journalists who are out of work, you know, who are, are not doing as much work as they can. I know a lot of them myself. And it is tragic. The stories that are not being done in this country are legion. Bruce, thank you. You're welcome. That was your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. 
We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is at Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Canada Land of the Movies debuts this Wednesday at the Review Cinema in Toronto, and you can check out their website to buy tickets. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like Canada Land, then you may want to know that we are 98.34% of the way to launching a weekly arts and culture podcast. So please support us.